says, beginning at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened up his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he, ha and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he has to suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord God, that as we look at your word, as we open your word, it encourages us to see that this almighty God that you are wants to meet with his people here today. So as we read your words, we pray for a genuine encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. In your holy name we pray. Amen. I love a good conversion story, don't you? A story of someone who has maybe lived an incredibly messed up life. Maybe they have fallen in with the wrong crowd at some point in their life. Maybe they've got themselves into all kinds of trouble with the law. Maybe when it comes to their life, they have simply lost everything. I love a story about how God then intervenes and does something incredible in their life and they become a changed person. Some here today, though, may hear stories like that 
and think to themselves, do you know what? They're great when I hear those stories, but that is just not me. That's just not my experience. Maybe you are here and you do have a dramatic conversion story, but maybe you are here today and you can't even actually pinpoint the moment you become a Christian. I want to tell you today, if that is you, your story is no less valid than a dramatic conversion story. My story, I guess, falls somewhere in between the dramatic and the ordinary. I've never been a drug dealer. I've never been a murderer. I've never done anything, I don't think, which has dramatically broken the law. Maybe I've gone over 80 miles an hour on the, on the motorway every so often, but I don't think I've done too much, which constitutes as breaking the law. But I didn't come from a Christian family. In fact, my parents were atheists. But my mum realised that uh, when I was a young age, that you can get free childcare on a Sunday morning if you send your child along to a Sunday school. So that's exactly what she did. I was made to go to Sunday school every single week. It was at a high Anglican church, and I have to tell you, I hated it. It was cold, and it was boring, and it was unwelcoming, and that was so many more things I could be doing on a Sunday morning. So I persuaded my mum after months and months of nagging that it would be a really good idea to let me stay at home. And that's eventually what she did. I went to school, and as I started going to school, my parents split up. And I still remember the day my nan brought me home from school, and my mum was waiting for me, and she said, Luke, your dad's left home. And I remember saying to my mum, well, when's he coming back? And she said to me, Luke, he's not coming back. But then she said something which still to this day blows me away. Remember, I said my mum was an atheist. She said, well, don't worry, Luke, because God's your real dad. Anyway, these were words just to comfort a grieving child whose dad has just left home. But from that point on, I become fascinated with this idea of God. If God is actually my real dad, who is he? And if God is my real dad, I really should get to know him. And I had a phenomenal prayer life as a young child because I was fascinated with God. Anyway, a friend of mine phoned me up one day and he said, Luke, I've got a kids club at my church. Do you want to come along? And I have to admit, I went along purely because I knew they had a football team. And if I went along, I'd get to play for their football team. So that's what I did. And it was over your kind of everyday church diluted orange squash and a quite a soft digestive biscuit halfway through this club, we were sitting down and my friend said to me, Luke, are you a Christian? I said, yes, because I've been to church. So I thought that's what made me a Christian. He said to me, Luke, have you asked Jesus into your life? And I said, no. And he said, well, you need to do it and you need to do it now. I thought, okay, this sounds quite serious. Maybe I should do it. So I prayed a prayer there and then, which went along the lines of, Dear God, please come into my life. Amen. I didn't know what I prayed. I didn't know what that really meant. But my heart was sincere. And I genuinely believe at that moment, God took me at my word and led me on a path where I could accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Anyway, a few years later, I went off to secondary school. And this friend, we went to different secondary schools, phones me up out of the blue on one Friday night. And he says, hey, Luke, I'll go to a new church these days and they've got a youth club. Do you want to come along? Oh, by the way, the church that I go to is at the bottom of your road, so you don't even have to go very far. And I said, no, because just to let you into a little secret, one of my guilty pleasures is to watch EastEnders. It still is. And EastEnders is on a Friday night. So I said, no. But my mum said, go on, out the door, 
this is a good opportunity for you to go out. It will do you good. So I went along to this youth club on this Friday night, and I got talking to some of the leaders who started to talk to me about Jesus. And they invited me to come along to church. And I went along to church. I don't know why I went along to church, to be honest, but I went along to this particular church. And I have to admit, it absolutely freaked me out because it was totally different from the experience that I'd had of church in the past. There were people with their hands in the air, they were singing like they meant it, they were listening to what was being said, and I went home and I told my mum all about it, and she said to me, Luke, it's obviously a cult. I'd steer well clear of it if I were you. But I didn't steer well clear of it, and I have to be honest, my the reasons I didn't steer well clear of it weren't necessarily the right reasons. You see, I went to an all-boys school, and one thing I did notice about this church is that there were girls at this church. So I went along to this church week after week after week until I went on an alpha course. And it was on this alpha course that I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And it was at that age of about 14 that I have never looked back as a result of that particular course and meeting with Jesus for myself. My point this morning is this. When we think about how God meets with people, sometimes we can get hung up if our testimony isn't dramatic. When we hear stories of the dramatic, we do get excited, but it can also make us feel a little bit inferior if our story isn't the same way. But the story that we've heard read this morning is potentially the most dramatic conversion story that you'll ever likely hear in the whole of history. And if you grow up in church, maybe you do have that hang-up where you think, well, if my story's not a Hollywood blockbuster, it doesn't really count. What Paul's story actually teaches us is this. The mode of our conversion is not the important part of our story. And whether our story is dramatic or not, or somewhere in between a little bit like mine, Paul's story shows us that his conversion and his commissioning is applicable to each and every one of us today. Because like Saul, we need an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. We too need to surrender to him in faith and to receive his call of service on our life. And as we unpack this encounter together today, my heart and my prayer for each and every one of us in this place is that we will do just that, that we will have an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, maybe some of us for the very first time. Now, to grasp the full picture of what has taken place here, we need to understand a little bit about Paul's pre-conversion history, what happened to him before his conversion. By the way, spoiler alert, Saul eventually changes his name to Paul. And I'm going to interchange between Saul and Paul a little bit today because I'll just forget. So if you're wondering if I've changed characters, no, I haven't. I'm talking about the same person. He's just got two different names in Scripture. But before Saul was converted in Acts chapter 9, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, actually talks about Saul on three different occasions before Acts chapter 9. And each time that he does, it's not particularly favourable when it comes to looking at who Saul is. We see that there are a bunch of people who are about to stone a godly man named Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and what they do is they lay their coats at the feet of Saul. We see in Acts chapter 8, Saul approving of the killing of this godly man named Stephen. And we also see 
in Acts chapter 8, Saul set out to destroy the church completely, totally, and utterly. And he was going house to house, literally dragging out men and women who followed Jesus to throw them in prison. And it's interesting, when we look at some of the language which is used to describe this man, Saul, before his conversion, because the language of Scripture seemingly deliberately talks about him in the state of being a wild beast. The, the verb, lo menomai, is used to describe Saul destroying the church. And that's the only time it's actually used in the New Testament. But it is used in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms. Psalm 80 and verse 13 talks about a boar ravaging a vineyard. And it says boars from the forest will come and they will ravage this vineyard and insects will destroy the fields. You see, this man, this man called Saul, he wanted blood, he wanted the church destroyed, he wanted it totally and utterly wiped off the face of the planet. And what happened is that Saul hoped to contain the Christians, the followers of the way, in Jerusalem and destroy them all there. But in the face of the persecution, what happens is that some of these followers of Jesus, they escape and they go to a place called Damascus. And Saul, he is determined to follow them wherever they go in order that they can be got rid of. He is breathing out murderous threats against them and he follows them, therefore, to Damascus. And it's on that road, as he's going to Damascus, he has this most incredible encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. He sees a bright light from heaven and it completely blinds him. And he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And what follows is that this man, who is a Christian hater, becomes a lover of Christ. What does Saul's encounter with Jesus teach us about an encounter that we too can have with him today? Well, there are a number of things that as we look at this scripture together, we can see happens and things which will encourage us in our own walk with Christ. And the first is this, that we learn from Saul's encounter that God's power and his mercy is not limited. It's easy to think at times, isn't it? That God only really meets with people who are predisposed to meet with him. Those that have grown up in good Christian families. Those who were made to go to church at a young age in order to meet with Jesus. And even as Christians at times, it's easy to think, isn't it, that sometimes God only speaks to certain people or meets with certain people. Because maybe you're here today and you've never heard the voice of God speak to you for yourself. Maybe you're here today and you don't really think you've ever had a tangible experience of the presence of God. But what the conversion story of Saul teaches us is that God's power and his mercy is not limited. Today, you and I can have an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus himself said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. We can have an encounter with Jesus and the Holy Spirit can meet with each and every one of us today. And here's the best part. Paul himself describes himself in scripture as the chief of sinners. That means that Paul, when he looked at his life, he saw himself as the very worst. And if that is the case, there is hope for us. 
There's hope for us in our walk with him, in our encounter with him, and there is hope for us in our evangelism. Next Sunday, we're not going to meet here for church in the conventional sense on a Sunday morning, but we're going to go out and we're going to visit care homes together, and we're going to take the gospel out onto the streets. Some are visiting pop-up churches for the homeless. We're going to give gifts out on the street and the gospel, and we're going to leaflet and invite people to come and hear about this Jesus for themselves. And you know, God has the power to take our small efforts, to take our small gifts and use them for his glory to transform lives. And that means if you are here today and you are not a Christian, maybe you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior because you just don't think you are good enough or you are worthy enough. This proves that your past doesn't prevent you from turning to Christ because he has the power to rescue you from your past. The second thing that we see from our story today and our account today is that Saul's conversion was sudden and it was unexpected. Verse 3 says this, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed before him. Some people have looked at the previous encounters that we see from Saul in Scripture that we talked about already, and have said, well, what happens on the road to Damascus really is a result of Saul's guilty conscience, that he's done all of these things to Christians up till this point. So when he meets with Jesus on the road, he is ready, he is primed and ready to accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior. But that's not how Paul himself describes his conversion. He says this in Galatians chapter 1 and beginning at verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Paul never links his conversion to a work of building up to this moment. This wasn't the culmination of months and months of gentle evangelism, or this wasn't the culmination of being invited to a seeker service, which was nice and it wasn't really going to be offensive, and he could take his time and he could hear a little bit drip, drip, drip about Jesus. No, for Paul, what happens here on the road to Damascus is absolutely instantaneous. And that gives us hope for today, doesn't it? For every person here who is married and has an unbelieving spouse, and you've been praying for them for months and months and months and months, and they seem to be no closer to coming to Jesus. There is hope when we keep on asking and we keep on seeking and we keep on knocking. For every parent in this place who has a child who has wandered away from Christ and you're at your wit's end because you don't know what to pray. Paul was not open, he was not interested, and he was not spiritually sensitive at this point. He was utterly closed to the gospel. So his conversion was totally sudden and unexpected. And if that can happen for Paul, 
That can happen for others too. I wonder, as we talk about encounter with Christ, who you are desperately praying for to have an encounter with Christ right now, the call is simple. Don't give up. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking on the door. Because what Paul's encounter with Christ also teaches us is that salvation is totally a work of sovereign grace. Jesus took over completely on the road to Damascus. He definitely wasn't responding to anything Paul had done in order to earn God's favor. And this account just oozes the sovereign grace of God all over it. Firstly, a flash of light causes blindness. So much so that Paul was blind for three days until a man named Ananias came along to pray for him. Secondly, the voice from heaven doesn't ask Paul for his free decision to follow him, but we read this in verse 5. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you should do. Thirdly, Ananias is actually afraid to go to Paul, but Jesus tells Ananias this in a vision. Go, for he is my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Here's the thing, church. Jesus had chosen Paul long before Paul had chosen Jesus. And Jesus doesn't speak to Paul in this moment in a way that he might not go along with the plans. He doesn't say, Paul, I've got this thing that I want you to do, but don't worry if you don't want to do it. That's not how Jesus speaks to Paul. Jesus tells him what's going to happen, and he tells him the kind of ministry that he is going to have. We, as a church at some point, can talk together about predestination. We can talk together about Calvinism. We can talk together about Arminianism. But today, the point that I want us to see is quite simply this. This encounter that we can have with Christ is not about merit. It's not because we deserve it. It's not because of anything that we have done. It's simply a matter of sovereign grace. This awesome, holy, majestic, gracious God makes it possible for us to meet with him, even when we don't deserve it. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? And here's the final thing that I want to touch on this morning. That this miraculous encounter that Saul has with God, this man who is more or less described as a wild beast in Scripture, this miraculous encounter and the way that it happened was for your sake and it was for mine. We read these words together in 1 Timothy 1 verses 15 to 16. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. If you are here today, and you call yourself a Christian, 
Paul's conversion story was for you. It was to show and make Jesus' immense patience, his immense long-suffering real for each and every one of us. You see, before Paul became a Christian, he had this long pre-conversion life. And that was a trial for Jesus. That's why he said, Paul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What he's saying is that, Saul, your unbelief, your rebellion, those things that you have been doing to hurt those who follow me is a persecution not just to them, but to me. You see, up until this point, whether he had realized it or not, his life was being lived as a rejection and a mockery to the sovereign grace of God. That's why Paul's encounter on the road to Damascus is such a brilliant example to us of Jesus' patience and long-suffering with each and every one of us. And it's for our sake that we can see that today. It's to show us the whole of his long-suffering in order that we don't lose heart when things don't go our way. That when we're praying for those people who are prodigals or those people who just don't know Jesus or don't seem to have any interest in following him whatsoever, that we don't lose heart in those moments to give us hope to carry on even when we don't see results. It's to help us to reach out even at times when it appears fruitless and we wonder what the point of what we're doing is actually all about. It's to remind us that Jesus can still work and does still work through us, suddenly, unexpectedly, and by a work of sovereign grace. So, church, today, my challenge is simply this. First and foremost, where do you stand with the Lord? Are you like Saul was, pre-conversion? Not necessarily breathing out murderous threats against Christians. I hope there's no one breathing out murderous threats against Christians here today. But maybe you're far from the Lord. Maybe, if you're honest, you've been living a life of rejection. Maybe your life has been make, is, makes a mockery of the sovereign grace of God. I want to tell you today, Jesus stands inviting you into relationship with him. Freedom from your past and hope for the future. Maybe you are here today and you're desperate for an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Maybe you don't feel like you really have one up until this point in your life. What the story of Saul teaches us is in sudden, unexpected and sovereign grace-like ways, today you can meet with him and your relationship with him can go deeper and more intimate than ever before. You see, the same Jesus who met Saul on the road to Damascus is the same Jesus who can meet with us here in this room today in a very special and powerful way if we open our hearts and our hands to him. Today, we have hope in our evangelism too, that when we go out, when we make a stand, when we open ourselves up to the possibilities of being used by God, just as Ananias did when he went to Saul, even though he was scared to do it, God can and he can take the smallest and our minutest efforts and make them and use them for his glory. Why? Because salvation is all a work of him. It's all about him. He is 
sovereign. And this morning, I want us all to see the ki- his kindness because it's easy to give up, isn't it? It's easy to lose hope and it's easy to lose heart. But remember, as we're talking about encounter together at the moment, remember where we started when we started talking about Moses back at the burning bush. Remember what happened back then? When God calls out to Moses, Moses, Moses. He calls his name twice. And if you remember, what we learned from that particular experience is that when we see that happen in Scripture, that is a sign of intimacy. And what do we see here on the road to Damascus? Exactly the same. Saul, Saul. Jesus calls out to him twice, not because Saul deserved it, It was unwarranted and it was unmerited. But nevertheless, Jesus calls. And in a moment, we haven't got too long left in our service this morning, but in a moment, the band are going to come up. I'm going to invite Zoe to come up as well and to lead us in response. So why don't we stand this morning and I'm going to pray. Lord God, we recognize that each and every one of us doesn't deserve an encounter with Christ. We've done nothing to merit it. But here, right now, in this moment, you long to meet with your people. So may our hearts be open to what you would do through us, and how you would meet with each and every one of us. And Lord God, I want to pray specifically this morning for anyone who doesn't know you here in this place. May today be the day of salvation. May today be the day where people hear your voice for the first time, King Jesus. Have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.